does your heart break and your mind uh, nearly explode as you continue to see and hear what's going on at our border? And I, I am not here to choose sides on this thing. I'm not making a political statement, but I was intrigued by a, an article that James Dobson had put out several days ago after his visit to the border. And if you have not seen that or read that, I think it would be really helpful for you. And some of the staggering statistics that are a reality every day south of us are that people, as, as Dobson notes, are coming to our southern border from 127 different countries. Countries including Bangladesh, Pakistan, Turkey, India, China, Palestine, Albania, San Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, and other nations around the world. They speak their native tongues, he notes, which means they can't be understood by each other or the staff. Border Patrol agents, he goes on to note, are thrust into the position of caregivers rather than patrolling the border and enforcing the law as they were, as they were trained. People arrive in groups of hundreds, not singles or individual families lined up in an orderly fashion. And politicians, and this is what exasper exasperates so many of us, Politicians on both sides of this mess continue to exploit the situation for the advancement of their own agendas or their personal ideals. It's chaos that really seems to have no tenable solution. And I want you to just look at that picture, and though it's, it's a little blurry if you're looking at it and you're saying, my, my eyes are having a hard time focusing this morning. It's the photograph. But those are real people in need of all kinds of things. And it's not a Democratic or Republican issue. It's a human issue. There are things behind this that compel these people to liquidate the few assets they have and sometimes pay criminals to help them get to this particular point. All kinds of things, good and evil, frustrating and difficult, heartbreaking and thrilling, it just loaded into a photograph like this, but people in the middle of chaos. A simple definition of chaos is complete disorder and confusion. You know, chaos ultimately is the result of our sin as a human race. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, up to that point, God's assessment of everything that he had made was that it was good. And there are other descriptions, particularly in the Old Testament, that would describe creation that make us know it was whole, it was healthy, it was right, it was orderly. After their rebellion, God's curse began to spread across the globe. And where there was once order and beauty, chaos and distortion emerged, and everything from cancer and human trafficking to marriage problems and demonic oppression began to emerge. And we live in a world of chaos. We live in a world in need of rescue. 
Now, in the passage before us, Jesus Christ is descending from the mountaintop where His glory was unveiled for a moment to Peter, James, and John. And it was so astonishing that, remember, Peter had said, let's, let's put up three tents, three tabernacles as a memorial to this glorious moment where Jesus and Moses and Isaiah came together on the mountain and God spoke saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. From that glorious point, though, Jesus descends and enters a scene of total chaos. The nine disciples that he left behind have been called upon to cast out an unclean spirit and heal a man's son who's long been oppressed and abused by demons and darkness. And the local scribes have arrived on the scene, no doubt as the antagonists to the nine disciples and the work that they were seeking to do. Who knows but what they were mocking these men as they failed to cast out this unclean spirit. And a crowd is gathered, no doubt some hoping to see another miracle by the Jesus people and others no doubt to see a good fight between the religious parties of the scribes and the disciples. And all the while, the two people who desperately need help and compassion, the Father and the Son, continue in their misery. I want you to follow along as we begin reading through this account. Mark 9, verses 14 through 32. And if you'd like to follow along with one of the Bibles provided there in the, in the seat rack in front of you, please do. It'll be up on the screen. So either place, I just want you to follow along as I read. This is the word of God. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out, and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. 
They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Let's pause for prayer one more time. Father, we feel the intensity of this moment as we read it. We know the chaos of crowds like these where differences of opinion abound to the point where arguments break out. We've all experienced it. Some live in it every day. We also know the overwhelming struggle of a father's heart where his mind so distraught watching his son terribly abused by this unclean spirit for many, many years in his desperation comes, feeling his own inability, watching with disappointment the inability of the very disciples of Jesus, wondering if there will ever be any healing or restoration, if there is any help or compassion left for him and his son in the world. And then the son, though no words of his are recorded here, what daily horror he lives with, being under the control and influence of the powers of darkness, unable to live the life you created him for, a prisoner of sin and a demon. And there may be some here today, Lord, who would even understand that experience, maybe not of a personal nature, but of a family member or friend that they have seen darkness just dominate and subdue. Oh God, we come to you as those who need the touch of Jesus Christ, who need to come under the authority of his word and his will for our lives. As we sang just a moment ago, we come as we are, not in order that we may maintain our present status, but that we may be changed. Changed. So would you do that work of change in us? Cleanse away our sin. Remove the guilt, the stain. Overcome our unbelief, whether it be of skepticism or frustration and despair. Whatever lies behind our faithlessness, oh Lord God, would you just wipe all of that away and bring us to a place where we know the living Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are two particular needs of mankind that the Lord is dealing with here, and the first is inadequate power for ministry, and the second is inadequate faith for life. I want you to think about the first, inadequate power for ministry. Here are the disciples, nine of them left behind and obviously still expected to continue with some particular kind of ministry and suddenly thrust into a very chaotic scene, a chaotic scene that, that calls for effective ministry. A father comes, here's my son, would you heal him, cast out this unclean spirit? Jesus has done it, you all have done it. Mark's gospel has recorded multiple accounts up to this point. But they fail. 
They're ineffective in ministry at that moment, and their ineffectiveness actually results in an argument. The details of the argument are not given us here, but this scene is just absolutely chaotic. A crowd gathers around us to listen in on the the scribes and the disciples arguing back and forth. Perhaps it's of a theological nature. Perhaps there is some sort of philosophical difference. And perhaps the crowd itself enters in, giving their opinion. We don't know who all is involved in this particular thing. But then in verse 15, Jesus arrives and everything changes. It's a complicated situation that calls for supernatural power. And in verse 16, Jesus asks them, what are you arguing about with them? And the father steps forward. Look at verse 17. Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute and whatever it seizes him. And listen to the, the kinds of descriptors that he attaches to the condition of his son. It's not just here in verse 18, but there are other things that will emerge in the course of the story. But th- this is just an absolutely overwhelming and complicated situation. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. That is, they don't seem to have the strength or ability to do it. The desire is present. That never comes into question here, but strength or ability. Apparently, the argument has to do something with why they cannot cast it out. And Jesus will actually give an answer later on, and we'll come to that. One author who's been very helpful for me personally in my study of Mark's gospel writes that a recurrent theme in this passage is the inadequacy of the disciples in ministry with Jesus. Service in fellowship with Christ is characterized by constant awareness of the inadequacy of the servant. As this story illustrates, Jesus calls disciples to tasks beyond their abilities, and the fact that the tasks surpass their abilities is evidence that the ministry is Christ's, not theirs. Inadequacy is intended to drive the disciples to prayer, which is God's gift to them and another form of fellowship with Jesus as their Lord. Some of you are in places where your wisdom, your knowledge, your strength, your understanding is inadequate. And maybe you're seeking to help somebody else. Maybe you're in the position of just trying to work some difficulties, uh, work out some difficulties of your own. But the inadequacy is the overwhelming thing you feel at this particular moment. And you would say, oh, I, I can tell you about chaos. I can tell you about complicated situations. Every day, that's my life. And in the same way that Jesus, in his wisdom, because remember, he's, he's sovereign over it all, right? We've been seeing that time and time again in the Gospels. He's absolutely in control. It wasn't a mistake in, in leaving nine of the disciples behind, taking Peter and James and John with him up on the mountain for that glorious moment of transfiguration. He's not coming down the mountain going, oh no, look at what's happened. I never imagined that these nine guys would end up in this particular situation. No, as you read through the gospel, you just have this profound sense that at every moment, he's absolutely in control. There's nothing that surprises him or catches him off guard. And it's by his wise design that those disciples are in that position, and it's by his wise design that you and I often end up in those positions where we're saying, oh boy, inadequacy is an understatement.
It's not just inadequate power for ministry that Jesus himself will remedy in a moment, but there, it really is an inadequate faith for living. Look at verse 19. First of all, there's a faithless generation that needs to be confronted, and Jesus says straight up, oh, faithless generation. Now, let's take each of those three words, but in reverse order. The generation is a term that Mark has used before in in chapter 8. He'll use it again in chapter 13. In chapter 8, Jesus had used it with reference to the Pharisees. Remember, he said, oh, generation that seeks a sign. He's describing a a group of people. In chapter 8, verse 38, he used it with reference to this adulterous and sinful generation. It's, it's a description of a group of people. And in chapter 13, verse 30, he is speaking of the last days and the generation who will be alive to see the end of the age. But here it seems to have reference to those who the word faithless describes. That is, those who disbelieve Christ and His gospel. And I think there are actually different kinds of unbelief or disbelief. Some who outright reject Jesus, like the scribes have done to this point. The religious leaders who say what Jesus is and what He teaches does not square with our understanding of Old Testament Torah. Then you have some like the disciples, as we've been seeing, that Jesus has actually told them, and in this passage He tells them for the third time, I'm going to die and rise again, and they just don't get it. And so their lack of understanding creates a kind of faithlessness. It's different from the scribes. We might describe it more as an ignorance of faith. And then you have people in between that. And Jesus actually cries, gives a little cry of exclamation. That's what the little word O is about. Oh, faithless generation. Do you know in Matthew and Matthew's account and Luke's account of the same story, Jesus' cry includes the word twisted, O faithless and twisted generation. And faithlessness and that kind of twisting or distortion or perversion always go hand in hand. Because if you don't believe what is true about Jesus, inevitably it leads to a distorted view of Jesus. If you don't believe truth as God reveals it about Himself in His holy word, Inevitably, your understanding will be perverted, twisted. Faithlessness and distortion always go together. And then Jesus says, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? You know, there comes a point when the evidence is so weighty and the truth is so compelling that for an individual or a crowd not to believe in Jesus Christ is actually unreasonable. And that's what he's expressing at this point. Because he's done countless miracles to this point. He's taught multiple lessons and sermons and and taught in all kinds of venues. And this crowd is not unfamiliar with him. And yet so many of them at this point refuse to believe. How long must I be with you teaching and preaching, healing and exercising these unclean spirits before you stop arguing about nuances, no doubt, and believe and live in light of that faith? And these may be the most powerful, certainly comforting words to, to this point in the story. Jesus says, bring him to me. That is, bring the Son. And now we come to an uncertain father who needs help and compassion. 
Think about the position he's in. We just read verses 17 and 18 where he describes the condition of his son. Look at verse 20. They brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, that is, the unclean spirit sees Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Some of the very things that the father has just described as the standard life for them begin to unfold right in their their presence. Can you imagine the uncertainty this father lived with every single day? Will there be another episode? It's not a matter of if, it's just when. Will it be immediately after my son wakes up? Will it be mid-morning, mid-day? Will it be in the middle of the night? I don't want him to be near the fire. I can't take him near the water because it just seems like this spirit is intent on destroying my son. Those are the very terms that he uses to describe to Jesus what is taking place. And and let me make a little connection for you. At the end of chapter 8, Jesus had warned his followers and disciples, if you try to save your life, you will actually lose it. And in that warning, Jesus uses the same term. We translate it a little differently into English, but at the root, it's the same terminology for perishing or for being destroyed. And I think this is a vivid illustration of the kind of destruction that Jesus is warning people about if they choose not to follow him and go their own way. The Father says that it often casts him into fire and into water to destroy him. That is, this unclean spirit is not simply, not simply seeking to do my son harm. He's actually trying to bring him to the point of death, of perishing, of personal destruction. So to say this father is living with a daily sense of uncertainty is an understatement. One author writes, the father's description of the malady carries all the pathos of a parent's fear and dismay for his child's safety. His son is not simply ill, but assaulted. The attacks on the defenseless boy are recounted four times in this particular account. It's hard enough to watch your child go through a physical illness. But when you layer on demonic oppression and affliction, just imagine... It makes the chaos and even the particular argument that's underway all all the more frustrating. Here stands the father with his son in need of help and compassion, and they're just not getting it. And that's why the father says, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. He's representative of people like you and me. a relatively small gathering, but just the limited knowledge I have, this is a room full of people who say, I need the compassion and help of someone who's powerful. 
in many ways, I'm sure this father felt alone, and yet he is representative of everybody who's there. It's one of the strategies of our adversary, you know, to try to get you to feel isolated, like you're the only one with this particular problem or issue. And part of the reason that God in his wisdom and kindness has filled this book with stories of ordinary people with extraordinary problems is because he wants you to come to terms with the fact that you're not alone and there's no temptation taken you but such as is common to humankind. But he doesn't leave you at that point, does he? No, as, as the writer of Scripture goes on to say, but God, God is faithful. Who will, not be, who will not permit you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with that temptation also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. But we begin to think we're the only ones and there's no help left in the world and not even the disciples of Jesus can fix my need right now. And so when he says, if you can, there's the first emergence of a heart that has some faith and some unbelief in it. He wants to believe, but he also expresses this to Jesus to kind of guard himself against one more disappointment. If you can, do anything. Have compassion and help. You feel that way? Man, I often do. I often do in, in, in particular with certain things that I've been praying over for a long time. And you know what? Honestly, I, I reach points with some things where I'm like, you know, I'm just going to leave that. I, I don't even know how, I mean, how much more praying can I do over this? And my heart's tempted to start questioning and doubting God, wondering, does he hear it? Is he going to answer? Is there any compassion left in him for me at this moment? Any help? And some of us struggle to hold on to a relationship, a marriage, a child who's walking away from the Lord. Some of you are struggling to hold on to a vision for life and ministry and service for Jesus, and you're struggling. Well, what does Jesus say in response? We'll look at the next words. Jesus says, everything is possible for the one who believes. You know, that must have seemed like an insurmountable mountain wall to climb for the Father at that moment, really. And Jesus is not intending to hurt him, or to frustrate him further. But that pushes a genuine cry from the father's heart. Look again at the text. Immediately, the father of the child cried out. I mean, this is just too much for him to bear. And what is his cry? I believe, help my unbelief. This is a man who's like hanging on to the little thread of a knot at the end of the rope. 
And you know, sometimes people say things to you that make you feel the same way this father feels in this particular moment. And you know that you don't have perfect faith or strong faith and you're struggling and, and to, just to believe the truth, the simple truth that's in front of you. Not to mention all those questions about Jesus and Christianity and the gospel that just swirl about in your head and your heart. And to hear that word, everything is possible for the one who believes, is almost insulting and certainly adds weight to your burden at this moment. But Jesus is not seeking to crush this man or to insult him, but actually to lead him out of that place of uncertainty and to even acknowledge that every follower of Christ is a mixture of faith and unbelief. Faith and uncertainty. Because even as God calls you to follow him, he doesn't answer all the questions you have. He doesn't, he, he doesn't fill in all the blanks that exist about your future, what it will be, what it will entail, what the struggles will be, what the joys and triumphs and blessings will be along the way. He just says, take another step. So again, I don't want you to separate this from where we've been at the end of chapter 8, where Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's okay to follow Jesus. Actually, it's ordinary to follow Jesus with faith and some uncertainty. That's the ordinary Christian life. And from his heart, he just cries out and says, help. There's a sweet little thing that's going on with some of the terminology that, Mark's use, that Mark uses here, some very descriptive stuff. And the term that the man apparently used is a term that, that actually takes two little words and puts them together to form one, a compound word. And the first part of it means to run, and the second part has to do with after hearing a cry. And so it creates this little image the man crying out, basically saying, I can't even move off the spot I'm in, Jesus. I can cry, but you've got to run to me. Now, that's putting more meaning into it than, than maybe what the father intended at that particular point. But that's certainly the reality of where he is. I mean, where's he going to go from this point? What's the father possibly going to do? He's fully dependent upon Jesus. I love the words of James Edwards. True faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. The father becomes a believer not when he amasses a sufficient quantity of faith, but when he risks everything on what little faith he has. When he yields his insufficiency to the true sufficiency of Jesus. True faith is unconditional openness to God, a decision in the face of all to the contrary that Jesus is able. And so here he is, coming as he is. We just sang, come as you are. Here he is, coming to Jesus, saying, I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus, at best, all I can offer you is a mixed faith right now. But look at what Jesus does. He exercises his divine power 
for this father's need. He's also going to exercise divine power for the needs of his own disciples and the crowd that's gathered. First of all, he brings a powerful deliverance despite the uncertain faith of the father. Look at verse 25. I love this. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, he came out. You remember from chapter 3 in Mark's gospel where Jesus had said no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. And he was talking about the adversary, the devil, and his demonic control. Well, he's plundering the strong man's house again. And, and this unclean spirit, as all the others preceding, has no, has no recourse left, no option but to vacate the premises. But then, Mark notes, the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. Now, it's a little uncertain as to whether or not he was, in fact, deceased at that point or the, the violence the unclean spirit had, had worked in him had just left him as good as dead. I actually think he is dead. But regardless, with the Lord Jesus present, it's, irre- it's irrelevant whether he is actually 100% dead or just 98% there. Because this is the one who has the power over life and death. Another author writes, the evil spirit abandons the boy in a death-like condition and onlookers take him for dead. The intervention of Jesus, in other words, has seemingly made things worse rather than better. Is the result of the father's fledgling faith the death of his son? Listen to this. Salvation is a process in which things must sometimes become worse before they become better. This is a scary moment. We don't know if it lasted just a few seconds, if the Lord let it go on for several minutes. I don't think it went on a very long time, but can you imagine at that moment if you're the Father and your hopes are riding on Jesus' voice, you hear him speak those words, you hear him cast out that unclean spirit, then you see this violent act as the unclean spirit vacates your son, and now it looks as if he's dead. I'll guarantee you that every father or mother in that position in a moment would begin to think, you know what, I wasn't asking you to kill my son in order to deliver him. Please give him back to me. Maybe it would have been better to just continue in that condition. Your mind has the the capacity to think through a thousand thoughts and a thousand scenarios in a matter of seconds. And at this particular moment, it doesn't look good. But look at verse 27. Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And there it is. Anastasis. A resurrection. Don't you love the fact that Jesus touches the dead boy? It's another reminder that the God of eternity in great humility and love, laid aside the glory that was his, the glory that had just been revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, and clothed himself as a man, became a man, and entered this world and made his dwelling among us. And he did it in part that he might touch us where we are, as we are, and make us whole. And some of you continue to wonder if this Jesus is that personal. Would he draw near to me? Would he come and touch me and heal me, make me whole, make me the person that I long to be? And the answer lies before you in the text. 
The father had just said, if you can. And Jesus says, if I can. All things are possible to the one who believes. Oh, but Jesus, I don't have perfect faith. That's okay. I can work with the faith that you have if that faith is in me. He works a powerful resurrection despite the inadequate faith and despite the inadequate ministry of his disciples. Now look back at verse 10 of this chapter because again there's a bigger theme that Jesus is is moving forward here and that Mark is calling our attention to and the and the resurrection of Jesus has actually been the main thing that that Mark is trying to develop. And in verse 10 again you read that they kept the matter to themselves. Jesus had said, "Keep the mount of transfiguration quiet for the time being." But then look at that the end of that verse, questioning what this rising, what this anastasis from the dead might mean. Well, Jesus has now given him a little taste. So think about what does it mean? First for the boy. The boy whose life was in danger of destruction every moment has now been delivered and health and healing, wholeness have been restored. What does it mean for the father? The father who struggled to hope and believe. It means that divine help actually has come to him. The help he cried for. The help that he believed but also felt a great deal of uncertainty with. So it's not even perfect faith, but that faith is enough to connect him to Jesus, the great resurrector. For the faithless generation who was in danger of gaining the world and yet losing their souls for eternity, it's another gracious demonstration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God come from heaven. And for the disciples, the nine in particular, it's a vivid reminder that the one who says, deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me, He's the one who possesses the power to plunder the strong man's house and raise the dead. The power is not in them. And for Peter, James, and John, fresh off the mountain where they saw his unveiled glory and yet still struggle to understand what it means that he will rise from the dead, this also is a vivid demonstration of Jesus' power over death and darkness. His resurrection is coming. And this is a little foretaste. And so Mark records what Jesus does. And, and in one sense, Jesus is bringing us to the intersection of, of his divine power and human belief. It's an intersection that he intends to be transformational for you and for me. There can be no doubt in our minds that Jesus has more than enough power to help us through our unbelief. You feel like that's going to inhibit the work of God. It could if you reject him outright as the scribes had been doing and say no. But if your uncertainty or unbelief is more like the Father, this story is written for your encouragement to show you how Jesus treats people who come to him and say, I need your help. I'm in need of your compassion. I believe, but there's unbelief. Can you help this unbelief? And he does. He has more than enough power to overcome our unbelief. Now, in verses 28 and 29, we also learn some really important things. So look at the text one more time with me. Because here, Jesus makes a powerful point to correct the inadequate ministry of the disciples. When they had entered the house, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. If you read Matthew's account of the same conversation 
Jesus says to them, because of your little faith. So, so Matthew's emphasizing a little different thing. It's not that Mark's ignoring all of that, but under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark's, Mark makes a little uh, different point of emphasis. But Jesus uh, actually said, because of your little faith. And then, as Matthew records, Jesus goes on to say, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So he's encouraging them, hey, your little faith is, is not going to handicap your ministry as long as you continue to trust in me and believe in me. But what do we do with little faith? Sometimes little faith translates into inactive faith. And here's a difference I don't want you to miss. Little faith should never become inactive. And I think what we can read from the text, kind of between the lines as it were, is that either these men had not prayed enough or they had not prayed at all. And even that lack of prayer is an evidence of little faith. But the problem is they let their little faith go inactive and just got busy doing ministry without tapping into the true power for that ministry. The power is God. And the evidence that we recognize we're people of inadequate faith, inadequate resources, is that we get busy praying on the front side. And so Jesus is making this point to them that it has to do with the activity of your faith. Another commentator writes, prayer is faith turned to God. Prayer is faith turned to God. Both faith and prayer testify that spiritual power is not in oneself, but in God alone. And both wait in trust upon his promise to save. True faith is always aware how small and inadequate it is. James Edwards has written, Jesus calls disciples to tasks beyond their abilities. And the fact that the tasks surpass their abilities is evidence that the ministry is Christ's, not theirs. The inadequacy of disciples is not their fault, nor should it have the effect of impairing either their faith or fellowship with Christ. Rather, inadequacy drives the disciples to prayer, which is God's gift to them, and another form of fellowship with Jesus as their Lord. You think about that? Prayer is not just something you do. It's part of how you fellowship with Jesus. It's part of how you participate with him in the great work he's doing in this world. And, and sometimes we make the mistake of thinking, well, if, I, if God can just like fill in this great gap of inadequacy, I'll be okay. He's actually using your awareness of your inadequacy to get you doing something more significant, and that's praying and out of that sense, that reality of inadequacy, and, and through those prayers that you offer to him, he then actually does empower you to do extraordinary things for him. But the work is his, just like the power is his, and he's intent on having the glory all to himself, and he's not going to let you steal his glory. Because maybe part of God's wisdom as it unfolds in this passage is that the nine had been able to cast out that unclean spirit, they'd just start having a praise service about the nine of them. And Jesus is the one. So it's not a, it's not a fault or a flaw to look within and go, it's inadequate. 
My power is inadequate. My faith is not where even I want it to be. As long as you don't allow that to drive you to an inactivity. No, let that inadequacy actually drive you into active prayer, active service. Now, as we think it through here at the end, just three big thoughts for you. First of all, let's, get, let's make sure we're clear on this. Only Jesus has the power to bring divine order from the chaos of human effort. You can't save yourself. You can't rescue your marriage. You, you can't rescue your business. And if those things are going well, you make sure you stay humble and grateful because it's just evidence of God's powerful grace at work through you. Jesus offers divine compassion and help for uncertain faith. Even faith mixed with uncertainty draws out the compassion and help of our Savior. And while you may think of it as a liability, Jesus sees it as positioning you to receive compassion and help. He didn't say to the Father, hey, you, you need to go away and study your Bible longer and get some things straightened out. And when, you, when you've got full faith and strong faith, come back and we'll talk. Now he just says, compassion and help is what I am and will give. Come here with your uncertainty. And some of you need to keep pressing into the Lord, even though you feel a great deal of uncertainty. The compassion you need, the help you need is in Him. And then finally, prayer is the remedy for inadequate power and difficult ministry. Some of us come from that way of thinking, and you know, you can say this is how my family has been, but it's kind of that bootstrap mentality, right? You pick yourself up, and you just, you, if things aren't going well, you, you just work harder. And if you're meeting resistance, well, you, you push back harder. And there's a lot to be said for perseverance and endurance and discipline. But don't ever forget that God's economy operates on grace, not hard work. And because we receive grace, we go work hard. We don't work hard to get the grace. And prayer is that expression of, of humility and faith, recognizing I'm inadequate, not what I ought to be, don't have what I ought to have, but God, here I am, praying that I might have your power. Let's close our eyes. And I want to give you just a few minutes to think through and pray through the text. Where do you find yourself in the story? Do you identify with the Father? Maybe even the Son? Do you identify with the nine disciples who were trying so hard to serve and to minister, but it just wasn't working? And when you can identify the character or characters that you most closely identify with, what, what is God's word to you today that would actually grow and change you, move you from where you are to where he wants you to be. And your first step may simply be to cry to him as the father did, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Just cry out from your heart right now. You don't need to use audible words, but 
as, as you engage with God and He hears the cry of your soul, just put it out there for Him. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Or maybe the words of the Father where you too say, Jesus, if you can do anything, please have compassion and help. But as you pray those things, you cannot negotiate the terms of your own deal with Jesus. As if you're going to add him to your team like the free agents in the NBA this past week. Jesus, any little extra help in this position over here? No, you, you've got to submit fully to him. Say, Jesus, you're everything. Be everything to me. I'm releasing control of this chaos and I'm giving it to you. Oh, great God. There's more chaos within us and around us at this moment that we want to acknowledge. And a lot of it we've created by our own sin. Have mercy on us. We've said things, thought things, done things that are such violations of, of your good and holy law, your ways of righteousness, that if you just abandon us to ourselves and let us experience the full weight of our sin, the consequences, the guilt, it would be just. But we're here before you by faith asking for mercy, praying for your compassion and for your help. Lord God, would you hear our cries? Our households are a mess. Our businesses are struggling. So many needs, Lord God, that we couldn't even list them all if everybody had five minutes to say, here's where I am, this is the chaos, these are the needs. Lord Jesus, we need you. And we ask that by your presence you would quiet every argument, both between us and every argument against you. And we ask that by your presence, through your word in particular, that you would begin to shine light and illuminate the path before us, that we may take those steps of obedience, steps of faith, that we may answer this call that you have issued to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses, and to follow you. Resurrect us today that we may live. So, Father, seal your word to our hearts. And whatever else has been placed on the table, as it were, that is not from you, just, just remove it. That there would be no confusion, no doubt lingering in our souls. But seal that word to our hearts and complete that work by the power of your Holy Spirit that we may be everything that you desire us to be. It is in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.